Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Rennie mentioned, we're continuing on in a study in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, um, there's three different scenes I would like to uh, consider with you this morning. And I came up with a small alliteration to help you remember the scenes. We have an illumination, an irritation, and an intimation. It's a bit of a fancy word there at the end. An illumination, which I think will be very clear as to what that's referring to, something lit up in a very bright way. An irritation where the Lord has to deal with a certain situation that ob quite obviously caused him some frustration, and we can learn something from that. And then an intimation or a hint that the Lord gave to one of his servants, Peter. And Rennie alluded to that, and there's an episode with fish and money, and it's, it's somewhat comical, but I think there's some important lessons for us. The point of these are there's three different things here, and I trust and I've been praying that the Lord would find the right thing that you need to hear this morning. And it may not be the same as the person next to you, but that's the amazing thing about God's word. It is alive and ministers to our needs. Uh, so if you found it there, Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read the first nine verses. This is the scene that I'm referring to as the illumination and we'll unpack and see what the Lord has for us here. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured, or his appearance changed before them. His face shone as bright as the sun, and his clothing was white as lightning. And behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said, Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let's make three tents or three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were terrified. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus only. And now as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Do not tell this vision to anyone until the Son of Man is risen again from the dead. We'll pause there. This is a scene that I referred to as an illumination, or perhaps as your Bible calls it, a transfiguration. But that didn't fit with my pattern of three I words, so we'll call it an illumination for this morning. In the context here, where Keith left off last week, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus at the end of chapter 16. He said, Verily I say to you, there is some standing here which will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I don't know about what your mind jumps to when you read that, but when I read that, here's how I interpret it. Wow, the kingdom is coming. We are going to see the kingdom. He's going to set up the kingdom. It's here, but that's not what he said. He said, there are some standing here who will not die until they see the Son of Man. 
coming in his kingdom. Or as another translation puts it, they will see the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, who comes with his kingdom. So some of you, he says, will see what Jesus will look like when he comes with his kingdom. And I'm sure they didn't understand at the moment what that was going to be, but then roughly verse 1 of chapter 17, a week later, they got to experience something that, wow, this is what Jesus really looks like and what he will be with his kingdom. So the Lord didn't lie. It says at the start of 17 here, they went up into a high mountain. Now, I'm, I'm not really one for, for mountain climbing. Perhaps some of you are. Uh, we're not told here exactly which mountain this was, and there's much speculation as people like to have, have fun with these things. And there's a few mountains in the area. One of them is referred to as Mount Hermon. Perhaps that was it. Perhaps it wasn't. But if it was, it's roughly 7,000 feet tall uh, and as I Google these things, apparently that would take six to eight hours to climb a mountain like that. I share that with you, what mountain it was and how high it was, somewhat irrelevant. However, just for you to understand, this was a, this was a trip. They didn't just roll out of bed and this experience happened. So they have put hours and hours of time into this climb this morning, and perhaps that explains uh, some of the disciples' behavior in a few minutes. We'll see they actually fell asleep during what seems like an amazing moment. Well, why would they fall asleep? Well. Maybe they're eight hours into a mountain trek that day. But why did they go up into a mountain in the first place? Well, this is where the wonder of uh, the way the Gospels have been written. We have these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all reflecting to us uh, different incidents in the life of the Lord Jesus. And so in this case, this incident is recorded for us in Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke. And so I'm going to be referring to them a little bit this morning as well, just so we can fill in a few details. And I really like Luke adds a bit of detail for us, so you're welcome to turn over to Luke 9 and leave a finger there if you like, or you can just listen. It says this in Luke 9, it came to pass, Peter, James, and John went up into a mountain to pray. So that was not revealed to us in Matthew 17, so the Lord says, guys, we're going to go up, we're going to pray. Now, do we need to go up into a high mountain to have prayer with God? Do we get better reception if we're up there? Well, of course not. But there is something very practical about having a quiet place, isolation. For you, that might be a part of your room or it might be a part, but if you're in this crazy busy part of your house or school or work, wherever that is, I'll tell you what, that doesn't really condone itself well to serious prayer. And you'll, you'll understand that. And so for the Lord who was constantly in demand, for him perhaps going up into a high mountain, that was that quiet place for him. So they went up to pray, as we learn in Luke, and then we learn something else. Verse 29 of Luke 9, as he prayed, his countenance was altered. So it wasn't just spontaneously, it was the moment the Lord began to commune with his heavenly Father that his appearance changed. And, and as we read in Matthew 17, he shone as bright as the sun, his clothing as white as lightning. Can't even imagine what that would have been looked like. Uh, one commentator it made me chuckle. Um, Alexander McLaren wrote, I'll read exactly what he wrote. He said, this, ex this experience presents neither parallel with anything in our experience, nor any real lesson for us. It's not worth saying, well, you know, he looked kind of like this or kind of like that. No, there's never been anything like this moment as they saw. And it wasn't so much could I say that Jesus changed his appearance. Rather, it was more of an unveiling. It was a revelation of what he really is. This is what the Son of Man looks like. More the miracle is the fact that he veils that glory as he looked just like a regular man for much of his life here in the world. 
And the moment he prayed, that's what happened. Now, I see in this, uh, this transfiguration event, there's three miracles. One of them, obviously, what we just talked about, the, the revelation of his appearance, the glory, the lightning, the, the sun, how bright he would have been. They would have hardly even been able to look at him. Now, why? If he went up in a mountain to pray, why didn't he just go by himself? Obviously, he invited Peter, James, and John for a reason. He wanted them to see this. And he tells them, if you remember at verse 9 on the way back down, don't tell anyone else about this, which is somewhat puzzling. But you see, he wanted them to have unshakable evidence in their heart. He's starting to tell them about what's going to happen to his life. Up until this point, he is a man who they feel is untouchable. Nothing could ever happen to Jesus. And he's starting to explain to them, actually, I have come to die. I have come to lay down my life. And they don't fully understand this. And he knows their life, their, everything's going to be shaken when he is arrested and crucified and all that. But he wants them to remember that he is supernatural, that he is real. And I'll tell you, this was a life-changing event for them. We'll see in a moment. They never forgot what happened this day. So the Lord knew he is the master teacher. It reminds me of at the end of John's gospel, you remember after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, all of the disciples got to witness the risen Lord except Thomas on that first incident. And Thomas said, probably embittered in his heart, he said, you know, I'm never going to believe unless I can put my hands into the nail prints of his hands and thrust my hand into his side. He said, I'll never believe. And then in another occasion, about a week later, the Lord appeared in the midst and Thomas was there. And you remember what the Lord said to him? It touches my heart. He comes and says, Thomas, I'm here. Touch my hands. Touch my side. You know, Thomas never did. He didn't need to. But it touches my heart because the Lord knows what he needed or what he felt he needed. And for these men that day, the Lord knew what they would need to carry them through. And he knows what you need too. And sometimes he just reveals himself in a very special way. That later in a moment of trial of faith or when things aren't going so well the lord brings back a memory and says yeah i was there and those special things really can carry you through so that's one miracle the appearance of the lord jesus but let's not stop there verse three while he was speaking behold there appeared moses and elijah talking with him now let's not underestimate how amazing that would have been too these are heroes of the old testament uh, Peter, James, and John have, have only heard of Moses and Elijah. Uh, they've walked every day with Jesus. I don't want to say that that, I don't want to lessen that in any way, but these are literally the people they've read about their entire life, and they're there, probably at arm's length with them on this mountain. Now, why are they there? It's kind of an interesting thing. Why them? Why not hundreds of other people that have appeared in our Old Testament? In about four or five weeks' time, I'm not sure who's speaking on Matthew 22, but in the episode, the Lord is essentially in an inquisition. All these people are trotting out these hard questions to ask Jesus this and that. They're trying to trip him up. And one of the questions, a scribe comes up to him and says, what is the most important commandment? And the Lord, I'll add my preface, says, well, that's easy. Love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, on these hang all the law and the prophets. So essentially what he's saying, the summation of the entire Old Testament as we would know it today, he calls the law and the prophets. The giving of the law through Moses and then many prophets. A prophet is simply someone through whom God spoke. 
at a time in which there was not the word of God in an accessible format that we could see God's will any moment of any day, God used men and women. He raised them up and he spoke direction to the people, people like Elijah and many others. Um, so the law and the prophets basically summarizes the majority of the Old Testament. And so these two individuals, as the Lord used in Matthew 22 there, they represent the entirety of the Old Testament. Moses for the law. The law was given by Moses, who read in John chapter 1, and Elijah, who represented the prophets. Elijah, perhaps best known for his incident up on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and calling fire from heaven and so on. Tremendous hero for God. Now, why these men? So they represent the Old Testament. Okay. Something else really interesting about these two, I don't know if you ever thought about it, nobody ever witnessed their death. Elijah was a man who was carried up straight to heaven in a chariot of fire. They read in 2 Kings 2, God just took him from life home. Um, and Moses, at the end of his life, we read that God took him up into a mountain, Mount Nebo, so he could look out over the promised land that he was not allowed to enter. And it says God buried him and no one ever knew where he was buried. So I don't know if there's something to read into that. Nobody really knew where their graves were. Regardless, they were there that day. And uh, why are they there? Here's the fascinating thing. If I tap back into Luke chapter 9, we get one small insight into why they appeared. It says, Moses and Elijah appeared, and they spoke of his decease, or spoke of his departure. So just imagine the Lord Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah about his upcoming departure from the world, about his, his mission, about why he came, why he's coming to lay down his life and how he eventually is going to go back to heaven. They're just discussing this that day. I, I almost wonder if they were comforting him as they were talking about his departure to come. We don't know exactly, but that's what they were talking about that day. So. The change of his appearance, that's a miracle. The appearance of these two men, that's a miracle. And then what's the third miracle? Well, coming out of that, if I continue on just reading for a moment from Luke 9, it says how they appeared. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavily asleep. So this is, again, where us from the comfort of our chair, it's easy to throw stones and say, how could you possibly sleep through that event? One in a, in a zillion, could we say, that something like this has never happened in the history of the world, never would happen again, and there they are asleep. But remember, eight-hour journey up the mountain, like physically, they were just exhausted. Um, so we're all cut from the same cloth, so let's not feel we would have been any better. But however, they were asleep while this discussion's going on. Verse 32, Luke 9, when they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men that were with him, and it came to pass, Peter said, it's good for us to be here. Let's make the three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love the end of Luke 9, 33. It says in brackets, Peter did not know what he was saying. Didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He meant well. He thought, you know, this is an amazing thing. I want this to last forever. Let's build tents. You guys can stay the night and let's stay here forever. Let's never go back down. Who wouldn't want to leave the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? So Peter, his heart was in the right place, but the scriptures point out, didn't have a clue what he was talking about, because what happened out of that was a great cloud descended on them, and they heard a voice, a voice from heaven that said this, Matthew 17, and verse 5, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. 
That's not the first time they had heard that exact phrase, descend from heaven. Earlier on, in the, the beginning of the ministry of the life of the Lord Jesus, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And the moment he was baptized, the scriptures say, heaven opened, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and they heard a voice from heaven that said those exact same words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, but there is one addition here for us in Matthew 17 to that, and it's the two words at the end of it, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him, listen to him. You see, Peter in his heart felt that day that he was in the presence of three great men and he wanted to honor them. But the miscalculation that he had made was actually he was in the presence of two great men and the Son of God. You see, there's a lesson in here for us that we never take Jesus and put him on the same level as any man, woman, or created being, angels or anything else. He is, a great word for it to me is peerless. He is without peer. He is on a, a platform by himself. And what Peter did here inadvertently, he was not trying to blaspheme the Lord at all. He had nothing but the best intentions, and we might as well. But this matters. It mattered to God the Father. And so he pointed out, you listen to him above all else. And that's why when they opened their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus. Everything else was gone. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled everything that we are ever told about the law and the prophets. We live today no longer under the law and the prophets. The teaching is great, and we're, we're grateful for it, and we see the connections. But today, the new covenant, the agreement that God has with the world, is we come to God through Jesus Christ and through nothing else. And so we got to be very careful of people, friends, religions, or anything else that puts Jesus on the same level as any other created being. Because we learn here... God the Father is, is offended by that. That's not what it is. He stands alone. So, wow, what a scene they experienced that day. Now, on the way back down, verse 9, that's where the Lord tells them, I charge you, do not tell anyone about this vision until I'm risen from the dead. I don't know about you. I was kind of chuckling to myself. If this was today... In a social media generation, I could just picture people wanting to go down like, I can't wait to get this on my social, tell people what happened to me today. But we learn from this, isn't it true, though, that sometimes experiences are for us. They're not for everyone else. And I think that's okay. Things can happen to you and the whole world doesn't need to know about it. The, the Lord revealed to them here something special that they didn't understand the full depth of how this would help them through dark times to come. But they knew it would. And I'll tell you, they never forgot it. And I, I know that because as we were studying Tuesday night in 2 Peter chapter 1, well, Peter said it exactly. Let me actually read the exact verses. So this is years, years later in Peter's life as he is reflecting on what had happened to him in this mountain. He says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This voice came from heaven. We heard it when we were with him in the holy mountain. This may have been 20, 30, 40 years later. How many sentences do you remember from 30 years ago that someone spoke to you on one day? Probably not too many. How many sentences will you remember that I speak this morning in 20 minutes from now? Probably not very many. The point is, this changed his life. 
He never forgot this, and the Lord knew that. John, the same thing, John chapter 1, as John's writing his gospel, he says, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And James, this is not the James of whom we have a book written in the New Testament. That was the Lord's half-brother. The James here, that was James, brother of John. He doesn't have it written down because, unfortunately, he was one of the first martyrs that we read about in the church in Acts chapter 12. Otherwise, perhaps he would have written of it too. I, I suspect for all three of them, they never forgot what happened that day, and the Lord knew it was for them. And so that's why he told them, you keep this secret. This isn't for everyone. This will carry you through. I need you guys to keep it together as pillars and leaders among the disciples. So a couple lessons for us before we continue on to the next segment. Um, communion with God, that quiet time, that prayer, is what changed his appearance. I feel there's a bit of a practical lesson for it. It doesn't mean when you spend quiet time with God that you will be shining as the sun and bright as lightning. But I'll tell you what, sometimes I feel that way. When you, I don't know, you listen to some songs or you spend some time in the word or in prayer, it lights the fire again. It reinvigorates my heart when I'm down or whatever. What happened to him in, in some ways happens to us as well. We need that quiet place. It doesn't have to be 8,000 feet up in a mountain. But you need to have some place where you're free from distraction with nothing but communion with God. Second thing, the law and the prophets, as great as they were and amazing it was to see them, they fade to black in the presence of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life to God today. No one stands on a platform with Jesus. Okay, so now we're coming back down the mountain. Scene two. So scene one, illumination. Scene two, irritation. His disciples asked him, verse 10, saying, Why did the scribes and Elijah, why did the scribes then say that Elijah must first come? Jesus answered, Elijah truly shall come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, and they've done unto him whatever they wanted. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is a quick detour before we do our irritation the disciples so the lord just told them don't tell anyone about this so they're like they're thinking okay we get one question it sounds like this is pretty touchy why does the scripture say that elijah needs to come before the kingdom gets reestablished? and they're referring to the very last sentence of your old testament in malachi 4 verse 5 it says behold i will send elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord and the disciples are thinking like okay your kingdom's coming soon that was Elijah, but now he's gone. How does this all work? And the Lord tells him he's already did come. And they understood, verse 13, it wasn't literal Elijah. It was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. You see, sometimes you read something in Scripture and it seems obvious, but there's a bit of a deeper meaning. And the Lord interpreted for them that day that the messenger did come, John the Baptist. And what did they do with him? They cut off his head. They didn't want to hear and so everything that needed to happen before the kingdom had come had been fulfilled. And they're like, wow, okay, this is real. So they get to the bottom of the mountain, verse 13, verse 14, rather. When they came to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures. He suffers greatly. Sometimes he falls in the fire, sometimes in the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. 
I don't know about you, but when I read that account, it doesn't quite pass the smell test, if I could put it that way for me. It just doesn't line up with the compassion I know that exists in the Lord. Like, like why is he so frustrated here? Is he frustrated at the father? Father just has a son who is terribly ill. And, and he, as any parent, you would want nothing but the best for your kids. You bring him to him and you're like, could you please heal him? And the Lord just has this outburst. Like, like what's going on? Well, thankfully for us, we're not left there. We're going to tap into another one of those accounts over in Mark um, to get a bit more context as to what's going on here. Because the Lord is frustrated here. He is irritated. And there's good reason for it. So Mark chapter 9. We'll pick it up right around verse 14. It's the same spot in the narrative where they just came down from the mountain. But there's a few extra details that help us make sense of it. Mark 9, verse 14. When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes were there questioning them. And all the people were greatly amazed and ran to him. And he said to the scribes, what are you, what are you disputing about? Or what are you questioning with them? And then the father said, Master, I brought my son. He explains the same thing. So let's step back for a moment. So here's this, this father with a son who is terribly ill. Picture now a large crowd gathered around, not with a heart of compassion to help this young man who obviously needs assistance, but this crowd is debating theological questions like, hmm, I wonder why we can't heal him. What do you think? And like, it's an academic discussion going around while this man, this young man is suffering on the ground. And so the Lord comes into this situation. And now perhaps you could understand why the frustration and why he says this is a perverse generation. It doesn't get more perverse than that. When you see someone in need of compassion and you can do nothing but have an academic discussion rather than leaning down and helping that person in whatever way you possibly could. As we continue in Mark 9, you see, he says, Master, I have my son. He explains the same thing, how he's sick, and your disciples couldn't help him. He answers and he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. They brought him out. He saw him. The evil spirit tore him. He fell to the ground in, in foaming. And now I love in Mark 9, 21, it says, He asked the Father. So now the Lord has blocked out the entirety of this crowd. He couldn't care less about the academic discussion that was going on. He turns to the father and he says, how long is it since this has affected him? Now Jesus knows all things. Every time Jesus asks a question, it's not to get an answer. It's for everyone else to hear the answer. And the man says it's, it's since he was a child. So presumably he's a young man now. Oftentimes it casts him into the fire and the waters and so on. But then the father cries out, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. If you can do anything, he says to the Lord Jesus. The Lord turns it around on him. He says, that's not the question. Verse 23 of Mark 9, he says, if you can believe. All things are possible to him that believes. The question is not, can Jesus do anything? The question, he says, is, do you have faith? Do you believe? That is the currency of heaven. That has always been what God is looking for in my heart and yours. Not what we can do for him. Simply, will we believe? Will we trust what he says is true? It was true from the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of creation. There was that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit. And God says, I don't want you to eat of that fruit wasn't a logical explanation. It was, do you trust me? 
that what I said is true and enough. And of course, we know what happened. Um, here it is again. If you can do anything, he says, no, if you can believe, straightway the father cried out. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus rebuked the spirit. The spirit went out of him. It appeared so much as he was dead. And Jesus took the young man by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose back to life. So the Lord, if we come back to Matthew 17, he was irritated. He was irritated at the scribes. He was irritated at the discussion that was going on where people couldn't care less. It was a lot like in John 9. You remember the disciples were walking along. They came across a man on the ground begging um, who was blind. And the disciples, rather than reaching in their pocket or helping him or doing something like that, they turned to the Lord and said, well, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? Again, into the discussion rather than getting down into the muck to help him. The Lord wants us to have compassion on those around us. And he gets frustrated, as I could imagine, uh, when we are, we're not that. Because that's not the character of God. God literally came down to help us too. And so let's continue on. Time marches on. Scene three. So we had an illumination, an irritation, and now we have an intimation or a hint. Verse 24, we'll skip ahead to. Matthew 17, verse 24. Now when they were come to Capernaum, they moved to a new town. They who received the tribute money, or that is the, the tax essentially that was uh, collected to allow you to enter the temple. This was kind of an entrance fee or an admission. Um, so Matthew 17, verse 24, they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tribute tax came to Peter and said, doesn't your master pay the tribute? And Peter said, uh, yes. And when he was coming to the house, verse 25, Jesus asked him, saying, Simon, what do you think? Of whom do the kings of the earth collect tribute? Is it from their own children or from strangers? Peter said to him, well, uh, of strangers. Jesus said to him, well, then the children are free. To understand what he's saying here, remember, they're, they're talking about entering the temple of God. And this man asking, well, does your master pay the free? Well, he is the son of God. Do you think the son of God needs to pay money to enter the house of God? It seems a bit preposterous when you put it that way. There's so many lessons here for us, though. And I, verse 27 has a lot of lessons as well. I intentionally paused before we get into that with the fish. But here's one lesson. I think it's just such a beautiful, gentle lesson in correction. Peter misspoke because I don't know if he was afraid or if he just stammered and just came out of his mouth. But he said, doesn't your master pay the tax? And Peter says, uh, yes, which he doesn't need to. He's the son of God. The son of God doesn't need to pay tax to enter the house of God. But rather than the Lord tapping him and say, well, actually, I don't. Public embarrassment. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where it's either you receiving the correction or doing it to someone else. But someone misspeaks and in a large crowd, there's a correction made. That's a really horrible way to do it. I'll tell you why, because you feel miserable if you're the person being corrected, you're embarrassed and all the rest of it. Far better to do what the Lord did here. Wait later, you're in the privacy of a house. And even then the Lord doesn't attack him. He gives him an example so that Peter can understand why the Lord doesn't have to pay the tax. But then even after all that, the Lord says, I don't need to pay the tax. I'm going to anyway. Why? Verse 27, nevertheless, lest we should offend them, you go to the sea and cast a hook, 
and take up the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, you'll find a piece of money, and you take and you give that to them for me and for you. There's a great principle here. The Lord, he said, I'm from heaven. I'm a citizen, not of here. I don't need to pay these, these silly taxes, but you know what? I'm going to anyway, lest we should offend them. There's such a lesson for us here. There's a great many things in this world and in life that you could say, well, I, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. I'm not involved with that in the world. I don't need to pay that. I don't need to do that. Well, that might be the case. But you could cause great offense, and in fact, offense towards your faith, if you just cause a stink about every small little thing like this. At the end of the day, the Lord says it's not worth it. I, I, it's not worth offending them. Some things might. If it's a debate about the theology of the Lord Jesus, something central to the word of God, we fight, we stand up, we defend the truth. If it's things that are trivial, this of a non-moral, non-conscience nature, the Lord says it's better just to go along with what's there. It's the principle of Romans 14. It talks about believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he says you are free from the law. But there's a great many things in the law where maybe because of how you're raised or a background, there's some things where you're like, I don't want to eat this or drink this. I'm not comfortable with it. Maybe I'm totally fine with that. As of love for you, I would not eat or drink that thing in your presence because it would cause an offense. That's the whole point of Romans 14. I'll give you a quick example. Like growing up in the home that I did, we did no work on Sunday. Zero. We wouldn't do laundry. We wouldn't cut the grass. wouldn't do anything. And maybe that's you. And praise the Lord. You do that unto the Lord. As I study and read the scriptures, it's, it appears to me that it's great to remember the Lord on the first day of the week, but also that all days are created alike and that we are not under, like, and even Sunday is not even the, the Sabbath, even if you want to make that connection. So for me, I, I don't have a problem with that. But when I was in the presence of my parents, I wouldn't do those things. Why? Because it would cause great grievance to them and it wasn't worth it. He says, you don't offend them. Even if you're right, it's not worth the offense. And that's what the Lord himself illustrated here. But then let's talk about, as we wrap, the end of that verse. Because verse 27, that is just amazing in so many ways. I count at least four miracles in that verse. One, well, they're at Capernaum, so we're talking about the Sea of Galilee, most likely, large body of water. So what are the odds that in a sea that big that there would be a fish that would have exact change in its mouth for admission for two people to enter the uh, temple? Odds are pretty, pretty long, pretty, uh, pretty unlikely that there would be a fish in there. But then the second miracle is not only is there a fish in there, the Lord knows which fish. It's one thing to say there's a fish in there. It's another thing to know which one it is. And then the third miracle is not only does he know which one, the Lord directs it somehow so that it's at the shore the moment he sends Peter to cast line. And notice the Lord doesn't even give himself any margin. He says, the first fish you catch. He didn't say, go there an hour and keep checking. Eventually, you'll, you'll find it. The first fish. It's very deliberate and intentional. I, uh, the most prolific fisherman I know is Jerry Libby. I was talking to him on the phone this week, and I, I said, Jerry, i got to ask you, have you ever caught a fish that had uh, exact change for something like this in his mouth? He said, I've seen a lot of things in fish mouth, but he's never seen money like this. So I take that to assume that this is a pretty rare event. But I said four miracles. That's three. That there is a fish with money in its mouth, that the Lord knew which one it was, and that somehow he could direct it to the shore. I just imagine what it would have been like Peter walking to the shore that day with line in hand. I think if it was me, I'd be shaking my head saying, it's going to happen. 
I know what's going to happen. Even though this is impossible, I'm going to throw it in. And as soon as it caught, I'm sure he was probably crying or laughing or something because he knew what was going to be in the mouth of that fish when he pulled it. But the fourth miracle is this, that the Son of God, the creator of all things, didn't have two coins in his pocket to rub together to pay that tribute tax already. See, this is the one of whom it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how rich? He created all things. Without him was not anything made that was made. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, I'm going to change the verse and say for my sake, he became poor. Coming down to the world, we, we've reflected recently of his birth in Bethlehem and the stable and all, all about that. Like I've two small children blessed to have been born in a beautiful hospital and all those facilities. He was born in a stable with animals. But though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you or me, through his poverty, might be made rich. This is a lesson again for us of the poor, the poverty of the Lord Jesus, that he didn't even have the money, that this miracle, he paid the tax, but just to show he didn't even have two coins. That is the Son of God, the Creator, and why he came down into the world, taking on that state so that he could die in my place. Not availing himself of the riches that are rightly his, but so that I could have a relationship with God and you as well. Praise God for a Savior like that. And a few lessons today from Matthew 17, an illumination where they saw who he really is, revealed in his kingdom glory, an irritation where he was frustrated with the lack of compassion when there was a clear need. And an intimation, a hint to Peter that, yeah, some things we don't do, but sometimes you do it anyway. Even if it's not what you need to do, you do it lest you would offend. A few lessons for us in the life of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for recording these things for us. I feel like every time we study the life of the Lord Jesus, we understand him a little better. We can only imagine what it would have been like to experience and see some of the things that we're seeing these days. But thank you for recording them for us. And by faith, we accept that they happened, that we have a savior who lived and walked in this world, who did nothing but good, who grew weary with sin and all the, the lack of compassion and love around him. And yet he himself is nothing but love. He had compassion. He healed that young man. And I'd like to think that young man uh, owed a life, owed a debt to the Lord Jesus as we do as well. The poverty of the Lord Jesus is striking. He had nothing, nothing of this world's material wealth. We have so much. We are blessed. I pray, Father, that you would get our attention by this, though, that we would understand how much we need, not more material things, but spiritual things, spiritual wealth, the wealth of which the Lord Jesus can provide. He is the Savior of the world. The whole reason why he went through everything he did, they, Moses and Elijah, they spoke about his decease to come. The Lord Jesus died in my place so that I could have eternal life with him. He spoke to the Father. He said, if you can believe, and today I pray that we would understand the impression of that. The Lord is looking for each of us faith. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior? I pray that you would make the plain, truth plain in our hearts. Take us from this place with a memory of whatever you needed us to hear today. We pray this for the glory and honor of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.